Amen. Good morning again. I don't know if this really matters, but I, this is just something that I just do out of reaction. When I walk up here, I put this right here in the center and push this forward. Y'all have things like that? Yeah? All right, cool. (laughs) I'm just making sure I'm not the only crazy one. Uh, Who's ready for the word today? It's great to see all of your faces this morning, genuinely. Uh, it encourages me every time I look out there. I see faces I know. I see faces I don't. I see some I haven't seen in a while. Uh, so while I'm up here and, and preaching, I just want to let you know that, that I get ministered to just as I look out and I see what God is doing and I see what He's uh, up to and the people that He's bringing. So just thank you for smiling back at me and for being here today because it is a great encouragement. We're going to go to Ephesians chapter 6 if you have your Bibles. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, we will open up. The Apostle Paul writes here, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. We know here he is speaking about what we often refer to as the armor of God and how we are to be equipped. If we are going to be strong in our walk of faith, we have to be equipped with weaponry. That we are in a fight, and it is not a fight just in the natural that it is a fight that is spiritual. There are hosts of wickedness and darkness under the control of Satan himself, and they are bent on the destruction of all things, especially the works of God through His people, and to prevent lost souls from coming to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is a cosmic battle that has ensued since the fall of Satan, and it is continuing even to this day. It will continue on until Christ returns, and then we know that things are all sealed up and wrapped up as the eternal age ushers in. But it is of great importance for us as believers to know to understand and to recognize this, that we are all in fact in a spiritual war. Would you agree that it would not be a very good benefit to anyone if they were in a war and they didn't realize they were in a war? (laughs) That would not set anyone up for success. In these verses here, there's some language that I'd like to just draw out and ask you to ponder and think about for a moment words 
a charge, if you will, from the apostle to the people, from God to us, words to encourage us with things like be strong, stand against, wrestle against, be able to withstand. We see strong language that the Bible helps us to see we have to be equipped, we have to be built up, we have to be ready for battle. We have to have a countermeasure, say it like that, to the inevitable attacks that are coming your way and my way and absolutely coming towards the church. We have to have a, a countermeasure, praise God in Jesus Christ, that we, we have that. He also says that we have to be able to, through these things, stand against the wiles of the devil. You probably use that word a lot, right? Wiles. It's just dealing with a lot of wiles this week. A lot of wiles today. <laughs> not, a, not a common word necessarily, but I will say that the meaning behind it is, is very common. It's probably more familiar to you than you might even realize. The devil has wiles, which also is translated in other uh, types of translations that he has schemes or devices. It means to be very crafty. It means to be very tricky. It means actually this word in the Greek that's used for wiles is where we get the English word method from. Because the Greek word is methodoia. And so it means there are methods, very intentional designs to take you and I out. In fact, I think sometimes people, and I, I try to say this properly because you never want to give the devil more attention than he deserves, but I think sometimes people underestimate just how crafty, how deceptive, how cunning and sly that he really is. Paul says if we are if we're ignorant, then his devices can overtake us. Because they're complex, they're sophisticated. The natural man trying to navigate life through the knowledge of man will stand absolutely no chance against this kind of assault. We've got to be built up. And so the title of the message today is a little unique, but God brought it to me this way this week. I thought this would be rather interesting, but it is, in fact, I think what he is wanting to say today is three enemies you need to know and defeat. Now, we know that the devil can come at us in a lot of different ways, that this isn't to say these are the only three enemies that are out there, but I, I think there's something significant about these three uh, types of clothing that the enemy can wear to trap us, pull us in, and to trick us. Three enemies you need to know and defeat. You've probably heard the saying, uh, the enemy you know is better than the enemy you don't. I would agree with that. I also sometimes hear, I don't really like this one, but keep your friends close and keep your enemies closer. I, no, thank you. I, I'm... I got enough to deal with. I'll keep them as far away as I can. Thank you very much. But the enemy you know is better than the enemy you don't. I think it just speaks to the fact that we don't ever want to get caught 
off guard or blindsided or not paying attention to what the enemy is trying to do to defeat us. These three enemies that we will talk about today, if they get a hold of somebody, they will absolutely undermine their purpose being advanced forward, God's purposes for their lives. They will undermine them. And defeating them, overcoming them, which again, let me encourage you and give you hope that the Bible says the Son of Man was manifest for for this reason, that He might destroy all the works of the devil. So there's a victory card in this for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. You got to attach your faith in the right direction. You got to know truth and know the word. You got to know how to go to battle and how to fight. But if you do, there's a victory card in this for you. These enemies, if they get a hold of somebody, they will undermine God's purposes for their lives. Absolutely, no doubt about it. You probably will recognize all three of these. And maybe dealing with some of them right now or have certainly in the past. I would be willing to venture that is true. So the first one, number one, that we come to is the enemy of compromise. And let me just say this, and you you can let the Lord set this on you, the Holy Spirit, the way that He does. But to me, I, I really think there's a bit of a prophetic nature to these three things towards the body of Christ today, like where we're at, what the body of Christ is facing, and and. Areas that God may want to really emphasize to all of us individually, but corporately to be very aware of. Perhaps these things are even at a heightened level against God's people, against the church than we've seen at other times. The enemy of compromise. To compromise something is to be weakened in reputation or principle by accepting standards that are lower than have been set or are desirable. Compromise. We could say the opposite of compromise would be steadfast, committed, and unwavering. The enemy would love to get us to compromise. In Revelation, we see there are uh, letters to seven different churches, and out of the seven, two of them deal with matters of compromise that God's trying to address and, and trying to call out. And one of the churches, which is referred to actually as the compromising church at Pergamos, they are called out for their compromise. Now listen to this. He says, you've been doing some things right, you've been doing some good works, been helping some people, nevertheless I have this against you. He says, you have compromised, which means you have let your guard down and you have allowed certain things to creep in and exist among you. He talks about you're eating food offered to idols, you're engaging in sexual immorality, And you are uh, allowing a false doctrine to kind of hover around and be propagated among you. So this type of compromise is like dilution. It's like us saying, and it's tricky because we can focus on some things we're doing right, 
and then use that as a validation card to overlook some things that we're letting our guard down on. He says you can't compromise. I think you and I probably have been, are being challenged somewhere along the way, whether it's in your workplace, whether it's in a relationship with a, a friend, a family member, maybe it's in a dating relationship, that's fairly common, being challenged to compromise on some standard that Scripture has already defined for us. And the Bible just wants to make it clear and warn us that when we let our guard down, when we allow something in, that we are opening the door for something greater to come along. So compromise can be by way of dilution, but there's also compromise that comes by way of complacency. He calls out the church of Laodicea and says that you're a lukewarm church. He says you're not hot or you're cold. You're, you're just lukewarm. You're on the fence. You're straddling and hanging out. It's like a, you're not willing to step up and step out and stand for truth, which I think it's really interesting in this particular church when he's talking about not compromising. He's talking about being lukewarm. He says that you think you're rich. You have all of these pleasures and luxuries, but yet you're actually really poor. And many times this can be the, the temptation is that there will be certain pleasures or luxuries that come along in people's lives and then the compromise happens because they're afraid of losing them. It can look a lot of different ways. It can have... My security is in my job. My security is in this relationship. If we place security in something instead of God, then the enemy will use that to create a fear of loss. And then there's a fear of loss that will eventually cause people to compromise certain things so that they won't lose those things. I'm just trying to say that Compromise can come at us in different ways, and we've got to recognize that when a standard's been set, we have to be unwavering about it. So there's dilution, there's complacency, but one last thing I want to point out, this is perhaps one that might strike a chord with some of you, maybe one you haven't thought of before, but sometimes there will be an enemy of compromise that gets us to settle for less than God's best. To settle for less than the fullness of what God has for us. And I've seen this happen. In fact, I'll give you an example in a minute here. Even for myself, where I've had to fight against certain times of settling, compromising for less than the fullness of what I really believe and know God has. And often I think times people do this, they compromise, they settle, because they're fearful sometimes of the bigness of the destiny that God really has for them. They're afraid that they won't be able to walk in it, fear of failure or disappointment. And so a lot of times people will cower back or shy back and settle for less than really the fullness of what God has. Because in the fullness of God's plan, there is a great measure of trust that is required, a great measure of letting go, placing our, our trust in His strength in order to accomplish it and not in our own. We sometimes struggle 
with the unknown, with the unseen. And that's where faith operates. Genesis chapter 12, just want to read a few of these verses for you, point out an example of compromise by way of settling. Many of you know these verses. This is the, the beginning call to Abraham from God. He says, The Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Just pause for a second. That's a pretty big call. That's a pretty big promise for a destiny that is yet to be realized, but it's out there if you'll go pursue it and stay in faith. But you notice he says, get out of your country and get out from your family and away from your father's house. Get away from your family, the extended family. Now we know he takes his wife and and the immediate servants and all that. But he's saying, when he says, get out of your father's house, he's saying the extended family around you, it's time for you to leave them and go off into a new place to do your own thing. Some of you are like, I wish I could get a word like that. <laughs> uh, don't look at your neighbor right now, all right? Just say it. So let's jump down to verse 4 and let's see what happens right away. I... Part of this is me telling you, like, I, I think when I read this, I see something that's here um, that leads to problems down the road, okay? Look at this in verse 4. Abram departed as the Lord spoke to him, and he took Lot with him. Have you ever caught that before? Now, I just want to remind you, Lot is his nephew. He's part of the extended family. I mean, by all measures... He was not included in the group that Abraham was supposed to take with him when he left for the promised land. We know that Abraham taking Lot with him eventually led to problems. There was strife between them, strife between their servants. They both grew and prospered. Okay, and then they were having turmoil you know, I wonder sometimes if God's calling us out to a place, a big place, a destiny, and sometimes out of maybe just comfort or familiarity because we want to keep certain familiar things close, we bring a lot along with us. <laughs> and he was supposed to stay back there. And then that thing that is a small thing in the beginning eventually metastasizes and becomes a really big thing later on. Let me just tell you, small compromises will always lead to bigger compromises if you don't cut the head of them off and uproot them once you fell into them in your life. The hope is that, yes, we can cut them off and uproot them, but if we carry them along, they will eventually lead to greater compromises. There is a place where they come to later on in, in Genesis, uh, I think this is in 13, but they come to this place later on where they finally realize they have to part ways. Strife 
between them, between their servants. We can't coexist here anymore. And so Abraham, you know, I, I mean, I think there were some good intentions here. He says to Lot, you just take the side you want. There's two sides here in the land. This side over here to the east, the Jordan River Valley, it's really fertile. It's really great. You can have that one if you want. And then there's the other side. I'll let you pick. And so Lot, his eyes are set upon the fertile land. He picks the better side. He ends up having a lot of problems beyond that. So Abraham does this. But listen to this. This is very interesting that God speaks to Abraham right after he sends Lot on his way. And this is what God says to him. Pay close attention to this. He says, Abraham... Lift up your eyes. Now, that type of statement is often used, you see that in the Bible and and other places, it's often used to, to say, look up and see something you haven't seen before, or it can be, look up and refocus on what you once saw and were told that you lost track of and that has come out of your focus. And that's what's happening for Abraham, because God already told him about the promised land. But he said, lift up your eyes, Abraham, Abram at this time, and look to the north, the south, the east, and the west. And he says, it's all yours. Hmm. It's all yours. So, this wasn't something that was like this noble kind of contentment. I'm just happy with whatever I have. It doesn't really matter. A lot can have the better half. And we don't exactly know. It's a, it's a puzzling response, actually, a bit mysterious, that Abraham took Lot with him and responded the way he did. We, we don't see a ton of other things in Scripture that tell us specifically what God was thinking other than the problems that came along. But this particular moment, we see something important. He says, lift up your eyes, look around to the north, the south, the east, and the west. That means look in every direction. I already said it was all yours. It's still all yours. So God is just reminding him, I think, that there is a fullness to what I have for you. And there's nothing noble or glamorous about settling for less than God's best to try to work with the circumstances around us. Many times, we will be challenged to compromise in this way. We want to please people. We don't want to hurt feelings. We're afraid of the bigness of what we would step into, so we step back to try to keep it familiar. Let me tell you something. The four corners of our tent pegs, wherever they are set, friends, we will think and dream and believe for whatever is within the parameters of the tent post that we've set for ourselves. Many times, we pick those things up and we actually pull them back in and shrink it down by way of compromise. I wonder maybe today if God might be saying to somebody, Lift up your eyes. There's more than what you're settling for. You don't have to cope with that addiction. You don't have to settle for broken relationships because that's just what was in the 
history of your family line. Pick up the tent pegs, maybe, and extend them out today, friends, and believe for a bigger picture and destiny of what God has for you because Jesus suffered and died so you could have it all. So you could have it all. There's nothing noble or glamorous or heroic about settling and shrinking back to less than what God really wants to give us. Mm. I can tell you of times where we, after we had planted the church, and the only way I can really describe this is that God put it in our heart from very early on, from the beginning, that there would be a wide reach, that, it, that there would be a lot of influence, that there would be a lot of growth. And so God just spoke that to us, and He put it in our heart. And this is the picture we see. This is where our faith is hooked into. It's, it's where our labor and efforts are directed. And there have been times along the way, absolutely, where I've looked around and I've thought, man, it's just not happening. Times when, I remember when we just, it's like, man, we were just struggling to have break you know, a hundred people. It's like, we just, what's going on? You know, felt like we were doing a lot of the right things. And there was these moments that started to happen where I began to kind of like justify and, and I started saying things to myself like, well, you know, I mean, church, church growth is, is, it's all, you know, various and and, and maybe this is just what God has for us is, you know, we're just, there's going to be a small little group and, and we're going to minister here and we're going to raise this small group up. And, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I, I, I really hope you get that. I'm not saying that at all. All I'm saying is, is that that totally conflicted with what God had already put into our heart with the dream and the desire and the vision that he had already planted in us. And I, I, I realized it was almost like in the same moment of trying to justify and validate things, the spirit of conviction was just rubbing up against me hard, saying, that's, that's not what I've spoken to you. You're, you're giving up. You're letting go. You're, you're shying away from what you already know is where I want to take you just because... It's not happening right now the way you think it should, or maybe if I'm honest, I was even a little nervous, is, is my leadership even really capable of something like that? You see how these things can happen, right? We can begin to compromise, not just by diluting our moral values and letting things in, not just by getting complacent and fearful of stepping out and saying something or standing up for right when we should, but also by just shying back and shrinking our thinking to be less than what God really wants to do through us, in us, and take us into. So that was enemy number one, the enemy of compromise. Point number two is the enemy of distraction. The enemy of distraction. Distractions get in the way of our purpose. They lead us away from or try to redirect us away from where our purpose is supposed to be taking us. It's like you're driving along on a road and 
you have to make turns, and then you make a turn, and you get along and you look over and you see the sign that says, wrong turn. And then you just keep on going. <laughs> That's what a distraction will do. It'll take us down a path that is away from where our purpose is supposed to be leading us. And the enemy would love to keep us bound up with distraction after distraction after distraction all of the time. Distractions, just like worthwhile projects and efforts or endeavors, listen, distractions also disseminate energy out of us. When you've invested in a distraction, you have expended energy upon that thing. Now, I'm going to get pretty down to brass tacks here, but the Bible says that we are to redeem our time. Because <laughs> the days are evil. So if I entertain and I, I actually exert energy and effort down a path that's a distraction away from what God is, where, where He's wanting me to go, folks, I've really just laid down the greater for the lesser. Distractions cause us to disseminate energy, and not just physical energy, creative bandwidth and energy, to think creatively and constructively about how to move forward and advance things in our lives, things that God wants to bring to us to see and understand so that we can walk forward in them. Distractions pull us away. Jesus was a very focused individual, among many things. He was very focused. It's an interesting study if you just read through the Gospels with the lens of, I want to see all the times where Jesus was tempted to be distracted away from what he was supposed to be doing. I'll just give you a few examples. The disciples, they said, you need to make yourself known. You need to, you need to get out there and let people see who you are. We need to make sure people know that you're the king that you are. And Jesus said, it's not my time yet. Interesting. They said when they were trying to take him, don't let them take you. We won't let them take you. Jesus said, it's for this purpose that I have come. Hmm. Even on the cross, they said, come off the cross. Stop the misery and the anguish. If you're really the Son of God, just pull yourself off there. And yet he remained. In fact, Jesus says that he was like a a sheep that was led to the slaughter. It says that he set his face like flint upon Jerusalem. Wow. We see the focus and the determination that Jesus has. There, there are certainly things that come along the way that we would describe as like interruptions in his journey. But if you notice carefully, Jesus always evaluated the interruptions and he allowed them when they were in line with his purpose. So he was a very focused individual. Another person who was very focused was Nehemiah. I just want to read these verses in Nehemiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. It says, When Sambalah and Tobiah of Geshem uh, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, Sambalah and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakafarim." In the plain of Ono, but they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop 
while I leave it and come down to you. And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. Mm. I know many times I've had to get a hold of this in my life, and maybe, maybe this will speak to you. But there are a lot of times where there's noise and there's chatter down on the ground trying to get us to come off the wall. I love Nehemiah's response. Not coming down off this wall. You kidding me? Doing a great work up here. He's focused. He's intentional. And meanwhile, he's even seen, God's even given him some insight through discernment that there's, a, there's even a trap here. It's, it's like they're saying, oh, Nehemiah, you're really important, and we just would really like, these were all like kings and rulers of the regions around them. We need you to come and have a diplomatic meeting with us. Let's, let's let the rulers around here talk about ruling things. It's like this enticing kind of pull initially they try to pull at him with, and Nehemiah's like, I'm not coming down. I'm doing a great work right here. Notice that he is so focused and clear about what he's supposed to be doing, guys, that what he's not supposed to be doing is also very obvious. That's the nature of distractions, is they can, they can get us to be pulled away. The antidote for that is to be very focused and very clear about what, in fact, God's saying for you, for your family, for your household, for your mission, for your assignment, to be so focused and clear on what you should be doing, that what you shouldn't be doing just stands out like a sore thumb. Ah, and Nehemiah sees that. He's like, this, isn't, this doesn't even line up. You notice four times they tried this, and it didn't work any of those times, and then you can read later, but it says that they then tried to set a trap to start bringing accusations against him that they were trying to take over the region and, and overthrow the king. And even still, Nehemiah's like, you're crazy. That's my turn. But he says, you, you know, that's, that, that's, not, that's in your heart. That's not in ours. And even then, while there's still some measure of response that's probably needed, he still doesn't overreact and get caught in the distraction even then that tries to bring false accusation against him. I just want to encourage you, church, that you can remain focused. You can be clear about your mission and about your assignment. And when you are, the distractions that are going to come to you, you will be able to uh, filter, process, segregate and, and segment the distractions and wasted times of energy and set them off to the side and discard them and remain focused on the worthwhile and worthy things that God would be setting your hand to. Let's build the wall. Let's build the wall and not come down. Amen? Yeah. You know, even, even preaching and doing a message and speaking, can, can, there are times that it can get very distracting. There's things happening in service and movements and things that are taking place, and I'm trying to remain focused on what's going on, and then all of a sudden... Okay, didn't quite work the way I had in mind, but <laughs> it's supposed to jar you. 
But we got to remain focused. And, and listen, the more influence and responsibility that God entrusts you with, <laughs> the more sophisticated distractions that are going to come along. You're a greater threat. The enemy will, he will get more cunning and more deceptive in how he tries to pull and lure us in. You know, Jesus said that, told a parable of a sower, and he said there's, there's seed that's the good seed of, of the word of God and you know, his vision for our life. And when that seed is cast, he said there are four different things that can happen. It can be snatched up, it can be scorched out, it can be choked by other thorns and thistles, or it can actually get in the soil and be fruitful. 30, 60, or 100-fold return. Obviously, that would be the one we would want. But he says that many times when God's Word, God's plans, God's direction for us comes to us initially, whether it's you sitting in a service like this, hearing the Word preached, the Holy Spirit quickening it in your heart, or you reading the Bible, things happening, you in prayer, like there are times where seeds getting scattered, tried to be sown into your life, he says, and then immediately something comes along and snatches it right back up. I want to encourage you to think about that today for a moment, and maybe beyond today. We have got to a point as a society where we have a dangerously short attention span. <laughs> Ooh, that hit a nerve, okay. What was I saying? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> dangerously short attention span. I even think sometimes, this is just me thinking, but like, you know, you see this rapid increase over the last couple decades of like cases of ADD and things like that with kids and stuff. And I, I sometimes wonder, like, we run these kids around all week long outside of school, fast, go, busy, do this, do that, and then we try to sit them down in an environment and say, now be still and be quiet for eight hours. Does that you know, conflict for any of you the way it does me? But short attention spans. And it's almost like we've, we've kind of lost the ability to take something and, and ponder it. Let me say, it's, it's a great skill to be able to hold a thought and meditate on it. Because the seed has to get into good soil, and I think we're the soil, right? So I got to hold the thought. I got to ponder it. The Bible says that we, he, God said to Joshua and Moses, he said, meditate on this thing day and night, which is the beginning and the end of your day. It's like, and, and daily, right? To hold a thought is a great skill and to ponder it. Discard the meaningless, but hold the things that are of value. And don't let the enemy just constantly keep us distracted because he's, he's built into our culture and our over-stimulated sensory overload society that nobody can, can stay focused on anything anymore. Short attention spans all over the place. I'm just telling you that this is, this is not the way that we steward the promises and the destiny that God would have for us. There are many times where I just, I just sit and I'm just like, Katie, like, well, what do you think about that? And I'll be like, I need to, I don't know, I need to ponder that. I need to meditate on that for a while. Like, there's, there's some things coming from the time of meditation I don't have yet. 
so I don't know yet. And if I was just like, I don't know, move on, you see what I'm saying? How many things would the enemy rob us from down the road that God wants to do in us? Uh, so the enemy of distraction, but we can be fruitful. The fruitful man is the man who has the word at work in him. It is shaping him, changing him, and producing fruit throughout all parts of his life. Wow. That's kind of what's beautiful about the Word of God is that as we take it in, it continues to define God's promises for us. But much like how we said, you know, we could compromise is it'll remind us, hey, you lost sight of this. And I'm thankful for that because I'm somebody that, that needs reminding. Are you? Like, is that, you open up the Word of God, oh yeah, that's right. Oh yeah, back to being focused. Oh yeah, I lost sight of that. It's what the Word of God will do. It's, it's, it's vibrant, life-giving seed. We just got to get it in and let it take root and begin to grow and produce fruit. Amen. And then the last one, number three, is the enemy of confusion. The enemy of confusion. Again, just want to mention, maybe to encourage you to spend some time just praying and thinking and asking the Lord, like, man, are these three things you possibly really want to emphasize for me in this next year and in this season of my life, that these, these need to be really given attention, right? The enemy of compromise, the enemy of distraction, and now the enemy of confusion. Well, we know that Satan is the author of confusion, not God. The Bible tells us that. God is a God of clarity and a God of order. This is interesting. You can look at almost all revealed things and recognize that there is a God and that He's a God of order and clarity. Even in science, there's something that's called natural law. It means that we have the ability to look around at nature and at all of creation and recognize there's an order to this. Does that make sense? Like this is, like we, we talk about in the Bible that God is, God is evident, you know, by supernatural revelation, but we also have natural revelation to go off of. Like we can see this is not random. Like there's a sequence, there's an order, there's a design here to everything that's been created. God's a God of order and of clarity. We look at Scripture and through His revealed will and wisdom throughout time that He gives it to us, and we see that God is in fact working out a plan for mankind that results in His blessing and His benefit and His relationship with God for all of eternity. This thing has been precise, it's been calculated, it's already been worked out, and it will be completed. He's a God of order and of design. Even in the church, we recognize God's appointed leaders and He's given gifts and it's, it's there to bring structure and order so that there's a tip to the spear. There's a forward movement and advancement to God's kingdom on earth through His people. Say he's a God of order and of design. He's not a God of confusion or disorder. When people are confused, unaware... They will struggle with things that lead them to be very surprised and blindsided by events that will be happening in their lives. And I'm saying on a regular basis. Just didn't see that coming, didn't see that coming, didn't see that coming. There's a sense of being disturbed internally 
when one is confused, a sense of panic, a sense of internal turmoil. God has not designed us to live in a state of confusion on the inside. You can see how these things would perplex our soul. Times when you see the word confused used, one of the illustrations that I think about this is that when enemies of Israel were confused, they started turning on one another and killing each other in battle. Because confusion is like their minds were stupefied. Hmm. I'm going somewhere here, I promise you. People today, if they're not listening to truth, seeking truth, living by truth, then they're, they're going to be completely oblivious to what God is up to and in doing on the earth and what to do about the calamities and difficulties that we face as a people or a society. But that's not the way God's people are meant to live. We're actually able to live in a way where we can look around, not suggesting we know all things, but we look around and, see, and God will help us to see what's going on and what to do about it. We are not meant to live in a state of confusion. And God begins to call out all throughout Scripture times and places where voices that are being spoken and used in society and culture, listen to me, are leading people to greater levels of confusion. Wow. There are times all through the prophetic years where the the prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, listen to this, God brings them to the people. Think about this. Brings them to the people, and, and what's going on is God says there are... There are false voices among them. They are saying that they're having dreams from me, and I'm not giving them dreams. They're saying that they're having visions from me, and I'm not giving them visions. They're saying that they're speaking the words of the Lord, and I'm not giving them those words. Here's what he says. They're telling them, everything's going to be fine. There's peace. It's all good. Keep doing what we're doing. And God says they're declaring peace, and peace is not what's coming because they're living in sin. And so what I'm trying to say is that many times God used the, uses the confused to confuse more people. <laughs> please, 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 please beware, okay, of internet theology experts. Can you please do that for me? I mean, everybody's an expert now online. Copy and paste, drag, click, insert, and it sounds so mesmerizing and fascinating. And and I'm just telling you, there is more confusion happening out there in those landscapes than there is truth being propagated. It leads to great levels of disunity. Societies that are very confused, listen to this, truth tellers begin to be censored and discredited and lie tellers are made into heroes. Wow. Hmm. But God says in His Word, I'll give them a heart to know me. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I'll give him a heart to know me. He says, I'm the shepherd. My sheep, 
they're going to know my voice. And listen to this. He says, they'll also know the voice of another. Isn't that great news? <laughs> Church, I'm just trying to tell you, we don't have to be confused. We don't have to be oblivious. I'm not saying that life will be easy. I'm just saying when we look around and we say, God's up to something here. God will have the final say here. And we know how to navigate it in our life, in our household, in our workplace. I'm just telling you, the wisdom of God elevates us to a vantage point above the mess and chaos of what the world is dealing with. And there's peace up there. And there's an ability to be an example to the rest of the world who's panicking in times of great difficulty. People of God are clear. Clarity and order moving forward, not distracted or confused by things down here. But here's the key is that we have, to, we have to invest ourselves, prioritization, right? We have to invest ourselves towards the things and into the things that are going to continue to build up the truth wells in our spirit. Hmm. And I think many times people become experts in the non-essentials. And they are perpetual novices in the essentials. Does that make sense? Where are we investing our time? Because God says it's time. It's coming at you 24 hours a day. It's the same for everybody. Sometimes we wish we had a little bit more, but it's the same for every one of us. God says it's coming at you. Once you pass by, you can't get it back. He says, redeem it. Exchange it for kingdom oriented living if we are invested very heavily in non-essentials then we will we will be a bit off and lost in the things that we really need to make sense of the chaos that's kind of happening in the world around us jesus says my sheep will know my voice and i love it this way put up john 10 10 i'm sorry uh yeah, John 10, 10, he says, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I have come that they may have life and they may have it abundantly. Mm. He says also in chapter 10 that my sheep will know my voice. And listen to this, my voice, oh, this is so good. He says, my voice will lead them to pasture. Good pasture. Mm. Spiritual food for your soul. God's got green pasture for you. He's got nourishment for you. I'm telling you right now, the world can be dry and barren. God's got a green pasture for you to graze on. The voice of God and the Word of God will feed your soul if you let it get in there. And he says it's, it's for life and life abundantly. We know the words of God bring to us and lead us to everlasting life. But the words of God also instruct us and empower us for daily living as well. That's how good the word is. That's how potent that seed is that God's wanting to scatter and get down in the soil of your heart. Amen? Amen. Amen. I'll close with this. John 10, verses uh, 17 and 18. He says, Therefore... 
My Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have power to lay it down and power to take it up again. This command I have received from my Father. I want to close with that because I want you, if you're here today and you don't know this, you haven't heard this good news. Everything I'm talking to you about overcoming the enemy of distraction, of compromise, of confusion, you can't do that apart from God's grace operative in your life. You can't fight spiritual battles with natural weaponry. Say it like that. So, Jesus says, I came and willingly laid my life down. We know that that the people crucified him and put him on the cross, but Jesus makes it clear, they didn't do anything I didn't let them do. I laid it down on my own. But praise God, he says, and I picked it back up again. He was in the tomb And he was resurrected and raised from the grave. He defeated death. And in defeating death, he defeated Satan and all of the demonic forces, princes and powers of darkness. Anything that would ever, will ever come your and my way to try to stop the advancement of God's destiny for us moving forward. Jesus took All of that and stripped all of that away from them and said, I'm going to give you authority over that to reign and rule in this life. And I'm promising you eternity. Hallelujah.